My guest on today's show is Paul Huber, CEO of Comex in Monroe, Connecticut. Paul is a machinery dealer specializing in Cam Swiss automatics. That's Cam Swiss, not CNC. I'm talking about Becklers, Stroms, and Eskimatics, not Citizens. Paul is 84, but proudly says he feels like he's 60 as he raises his 17-year-old son. He's been working on screw machines for over 60 years, starting as an apprentice in Switzerland. Paul learned business skills watching his dad wheel and deal as a dairy farmer in Basel, Switzerland. He managed a jazz group as a teenager. He's a skilled engineer, an astute entrepreneur, a natural at stumbling on serendipity, and a hell of a storyteller. He also loves to speak his mind, which you'll see when we discuss the skills gap problem in the United States. So sit back and enjoy our conversation, recounting Paul's life's journey. You're going to learn some screw machining history, you'll laugh, and I think you'll get some inspiration for your own journey. This is Swarfcast, the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graff. As listeners of this podcast know, my family company, Graf Pinkert, has been buying and selling used machine tools all over the world for the last 80 years. Every day while selling machinery, we talk to owners of machining companies who tell us they want to expand their business through acquisition. We also encounter a lot of owners of companies who are ready to exit but don't have successors. This inspired us to start a new business service. Graf Pinkert Acquisitions and Sales, in which we serve as consultants for precision machining companies who want to buy or sell their businesses. There are a lot of business brokers out there who can list your company, but for the most part, those people are generalists. They may not have even heard of precision machining. Another unique thing about working with Graf Pinkert is that we often have a personal relationship with both the potential buyer and seller putting us in a rare position to evaluate if the two parties are a good fit for each other. Go to graphpinkert.com to contact us for a consultation to see if your sales or acquisitions needs are a good fit for our services. Mention this podcast and we will give you a free tabletop valuation of your company's equipment. Click on the link in the show notes. I am very honored to have Paul Huber. CEO and founder of Comex in Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Paul. Glad to be here. Thank you. I've known Paul a long time from the PMPA Association and being also in the machine tool business. Just to get started, I want to give people just a little background. What is Comex? So, so they have a little context. We are a machinery dealer of conventional machine tools are mainly Swiss CAM automatics. Right. In other words, we are on the way out because less and less people use those machines. Right. Everybody, uh, a lot of people listening to the podcast know CNC Swiss, but there would be no CNC Swiss if there was not CAM Swiss. It's uh, the evolution, and uh, I personally was directly involved with somebody who put the first computer on a machine, on a conventional machine, got the motors and everything, and came out with a machine which properly worked as a CNC machine. That's really interesting. What machine was that? 
Futuristics. That's the name of the machine, Futuristics? Yes. Yes. And was it from Switzerland? No, no. Right up in Waterbury. A gentleman did a very sharp engineer did that. Very interesting. Okay. So Swiss machines, you rebuild them, correct? Yes. Which ones in particular? Eschematics? Well, personally, I'm really specialized in Becklers. Becklers, okay. And then Pornos and the Stroms. But to, uh, that's what, what we have today. And then, obviously, the Eschematic. Okay. Because there I, I had a six-month internship at ESCO where I got to know the inside and out of it. How long ago was that? <laughs> <laughs> In 65. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. So, Paul, you have a very fascinating journey. We're going to talk about several fun things in this interview. You have a lot to say, I know, about skills in the United States as far as manufacturing and machining. And before I get to that, I think people ought to know a little bit more about you. So here's a blunt question. How old are you? 84, they say. They say? And you don't yeah. feel 84? No. How old do you feel about... about uh, 60. 60. 60. Yeah. All right. I, if you had I said 16, know. I would have gone... I don't no. know. That's my son. <laughs> he's, six, he's 16 or 17. He's going to be 17 in a few weeks. <laughs> so you're 84 years old. You feel 60. You have a 16-year-old or 17-year-old son. You can't remember. Uh, does having a 16 or 17 year old son make you feel younger or is it other things that make you feel younger? Definitely because, uh, we adopted them from my wife's family from the Philippines. Okay. Okay. One of her relatives offered us a son when he was six months old. Wow. (laughs) And I thought I was old when I had a son at 42. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, uh, here's the kind of tiny kid walking behind me, anything I touched, Dad, can I do that? So I let him do it. So a job which took me 10 minutes before, it took me an hour or two. <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know. The kid learned. He learned all kind of stuff. That's fantastic. I hope that my son Abe has the same. I mean, he does follow behind me right now, so that it's a good start. Yeah. Okay, so as people can can hear on this, you have an accent. You are from Switzerland, correct? Yes, sir. I'm from the German-speaking part of Switzerland. All right, no offense to the French part of Switzerland, but I always definitely like the German part of Switzerland way better when I visit. Well, I I had... I find the uh, French people are kind of... They're not French, but they're putting their nose up a little bit. And I find, yeah, Zurich... Basel. You're from Basel? Yes. Great places. Yes. That's where my my jazz was famous. Your jazz was famous. My, my involvement in the jazz music, yes. We're going to get into that. I, I can yeah. totally understand, though, because when I was in Basel looking for machines nearby, there was salsa dancing there. So I think it's still kind of like a hip place. So you grew up in Basel. You're born in in 39? 39, yes, sir. Look at that math. And you got involved in the trades. You were raised into that, would you say? My dad, we were seven kids. 
insisted that each one of us learns a trade okay. as an apprentice. Okay. I was in the music business as a manager, made sometimes more money than my dad, but he still insisted that I take an apprenticeship. Okay, so when did you take the apprenticeship and when were you working in the music business and how did you get into that? First, you were an apprentice, correct? Uh, at age 17, I started my apprenticeship. Okay, and in what? Tool and die manufacturing? Uh, no, uh, set up on maintenance and everything else related to Swiss screw machining. I was very lucky because the co company which hired me as an apprentice, needed somebody in the tool room. So my first six months were actually working in the tool room. How did you feel about it? Did you really like it? Well, that's the thing. Uh, I took the, that position only because I had my dad behind me ready to kick me in the behind. So I made the decision, okay, that's a job like just any other job I have, I'm going to find. And within six months, I was hooked, and it became a real challenge. Interesting. What did you love so much about it? Because I was able to catch up with my masters. I got my compliments. I could see the difference. We had two more apprentices there. For whatever reason, I had the ability of picking up very fast. Mm-hmm. Was your father in metalworking at all? or He was a farmer. He was a farmer. <laughs> but again, he was he learned the farmer. He worked with uh, some farmers. And I can tell you, uh, my highest respect of him came after a phone call of a farmer and told my dad he has to come and help him in the problem birth of a cow. And my dad says, no, no, you have to call the vet. And they says, yeah, that's what the vet said. He said, call, call Franz Huber. He'll take care of it. I'm too busy. I can't come. <laughs> wow. I was a little boy, but boy, was I proud of my dad. <laughs> I'm picturing one of those Swiss cows, too, with the, <laughs> the classic. Um, you went into manufacturing to Swiss machining. And then what happened? Somehow you caught the jazz bug. How does that lead to jazz? Or am I skipping Am I skipping something? No, actually, you ever heard of Armed Forces Radio during the Second World War? I have. Okay. They had played lots of jazz. I was born right next at the border to Germany. So I had very good reception of the Armed Forces Radio. And I listened to jazz there. And it stuck with me. But the Germans, dad, didn't, the Germans didn't play jazz, did they? No, no. No, it was the Americans. But, Armed forces, that was for the entertainment of the soldiers, mm. of the troops, okay? It wasn't directed to the Germans. It was directed to the troops. So you heard the armed forces jazz, and you were, I mean, like four or five years old. Yes. Then what happened? It, it got stuck. So, so basically the rest, you know, after the war ended, you just kept listening to jazz and were... Yes. And we moved to Basel... And after I moved to Basel, I found uh, friends who were, uh, were musicians, uh, amateurs and semi-professionals. And I hung out with them, jam sessions, all the time. And I got on their nerves. They said, you know, Paul, 
you do nothing. You know, you, we wouldn't want you to sing. We wouldn't want you to play. Why don't you get out there and get us some gigs? Did you try to play? Did you try to learn an instrument? I, I'm sure, but forget it. <laughs> no, didn't work. Okay, so they said, all right, if you want to hang out with us, get us some gigs. Yep. So they were, uh, most of them were three, four, five years older. So when you're 17 years old or thereabouts, you respect age much more then, you know, when you're older. Yeah. So I looked up to them. So I said, oh, okay, I have to go and find something. And I went by a place. I know they have dances and concerts. So I had the nerve to go in there and ask if I could rent a hall. And the guy looked at me and <laughs> sure. <laughs> I looked in his book and gave me a date. So all you had to do was ask. That's right. Yeah, but... Being with my father, who was on the sideline, buying and selling livestock, hmm. horses and cows and everything else, go with him to the farmers. I knew how to approach people. I knew how to speak with people. Interesting. You know, it, it, it's like you. For you learn from your dad, too. Definitely. Because, you know, that's the same thing. I, I, I became a people person because of him, because the way he treated his customers. That's interesting because, you know, if people didn't actually hear the details, they'd think, oh, farmer, you know, solitary, like you, you don't think people with, but he's a farmer, but also a business person. Yes, absolutely. He, he was. But uh, from there, I went to Coca-Cola, distributor of Coca-Cola, Okay, had poster printed, I went to the local newspaper, see if I can, can get some rebate for beginning just in the business. And they gave me a, a good rebate for my first ads. So wait, you you wanted to sell Coca-Cola? No, Coca-Cola printed my posters for free. Ah, for the posters jazz for promoting posters. the jazz. Yes. Because they would just put like Coke on them? Yeah. On the bottom, a line of Coke. And then I went from store to store, restaurant to restaurant, and hung them all over Basel. On my bike, I went from one to the other. That sounds like an amazing result, amazing experience. The end result, 560 people the first time. It blew my mind, but it worked. Wow. Um, and my musicians, they couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it either. Okay, so all this time that now, several years, you're working as a manager. What happened to working with Swiss Machines? Are you doing both at the same time? Oh, oh yes. Uh, that was just a sideline. After I finished, I have to tell you that I'm proud of it. I came in second in our class in ability. I went in the military service. All Swiss have to go, the Swiss men. Now the Swiss women, women too, most of them go. That's always interesting to me, since you guys are always neutral. But I guess if you're neutral, you have to have a good army. I learned how to be a small arms mechanic and uh, anti-tank gun. Wow. Interesting. So that was interesting. Does Switzerland still have mandatory military? Absolutely. Oh, yes. And you, you want to go in the service, because if you don't go in the service, your taxes are so high for not going to the service. You can, you know, that. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, so you're doing Swiss machining and you are a manager 
for a jazz group. Yeah. And you're what in your early twenties? Uh twenty, yeah. Twenty. And then what? Okay, going on to twenty one. So for a year I worked in a as a mechanic, machinist, toolmaker in a company which made uh, vessels and all things for the chemical industry. You heard of uh, Hoffman La Roche, Sando, Siba Geige, Novaris, right? I've heard of Novaris. Novaris. Yeah. Okay. They're all on the Novaris now, basically. In fact, uh, Novaris is right now setting up Sando as an independent again. Uh, so I, I did that. I got the job because they needed somebody right away because uh, uh, one of the guys got called into the service and they didn't have a replacement right away. I was not very good, okay? So when the guy came back nine or ten months later, the boss told me, "Uh, you have been doing very well for the circumstances, but we have to let you go. Didn't matter. Okay. Because I learned there a tremendous amount. I did welding. I did all kinds of stuff. Never would have been able to do that. So didn't matter me at all. And you're only 21 or 20. And yeah. so then what did you do? I went, uh, I said to Miles, I failed French in school. So <laughs> I said, maybe I should go to work in the French part of Switzerland. At least I learned French. And uh, I went to Beckler. To Beckler. So for the people who aren't familiar, Tornos bought Beckler eventually. What What is Tornos versus? Okay. Yes. Beckler, Peterman, and Tornos, they all started the business in Moutier, in the same town. Swiss machining Mecca. Yes, absolutely. So they started there. Which was the first one? Beckler? Tornos. Tornos. Yes. And when did they consolidate? So Tornos bought Beckler when? Back in the 70s. Oh, back in the 70s. What about yes. Peterman? They are uh, they absorbed, bought Tornos before that, uh, even Beckler. Okay. But Tornos never, never had the intention to continue the business. Peterman or Beckler, the same thing. I don't even really know much about Peterman, but Beckler, they were making cam Swiss machines, and Tornos was making cam Swiss machines, so uh, yep. was the technology pretty similar? Yes. Uh, Tornos was really specialized to for the watchmaking business. They really uh, were looking to, to build smaller machines and higher precision than Beckler. Beckler was more for all the way around, okay? Mm-hmm. You, Job you, shops. Yes. For example, the shaft in your blender, the drive shaft in your blender, is made in the Swiss, okay? When I came to this country, I set up some machines in Rochester products, you know, the... Yeah, that sounds uh, familiar. Rochester products, the the oil and gas, uh, the, the gas mixer and air mixers, the carburetors. Okay. I set up machines there to make the carburetor needle. I don't know if you've ever seen the needle. It's about this long, two inches long, and it has a taper in a certain way and fashion to modulate the gas input into the carburetors. Okay, interesting. I went to GE up in New Hampshire where they made the electric meters. And we sold, uh, Beckler had sold them machines to make the drive shaft 
for the electric meter. But these these parts, just so I can confirm, these are still really tiny diameter parts. Yes. Okay. So they're not watch parts, but I mean, no. they specialize in, it's the same kind of category of... In fact, uh, both Tornos and Beckler got into one-inch machines, for example, much later in their business. Sure, sure. The first thing was the, the seven millimeter quarter inch maximum capacity. That was basically all they built in the beginning. And what's funny is still like if it's a Swiss machine, the 10 millimeter, at least with the decos, the 10 millimeter is still the most popular. Yeah. So, okay. So you were working for Beckler and then is that how, that's how you came to the United States? No, you, you see, I have to say that. I am not better than anybody else, but I was always at the right time, at the right place. Serendipity, as I love to talk about. <laughs> I was setting up machines, and the customers came in, and uh, when they were Germans, they had nobody on the floor who knew German. So I took care of the German-speaking customers. And this is, this is in the French part of, this is in Moutier. yes. So for me, it was no big deal, okay? With the music business behind me, I was able to deal with those customers. It didn't matter who he was. Interesting. Switzerland is fascinating. I mean, how these all the people in the French part didn't speak German. Do you think back then and, and even now, do you think more people in the German part speak French than people in the French part speak German? Always. I, that's kind of what I figured. It's still, I think it's like Canada too with the Quebec and... I, yeah, well, Canada, I think the majority of the English-speaking Canadians don't really have much respect of the French-speaking Canadians. Okay, so you think the French-speaking Canadians have more respect for the... No, the <laughs> vice versa. Neither of them, neither of them like each other. I can testify to that because my first wife was... French Canadian Indian. My first wife was a Huron. Oh wow! Okay, Native American from Quebec. Very interesting. Her her relative was a was the chief. I met him too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you had a very interesting serendipitous story about that. I had a wonderful time there. Except it took me some time to understand they are French. Because you see, that French was brought by the first arrivals from France, which got stuck there, right? And there were very few French people coming thereafter. So it became an old language. It it did not renew like you listen to people uh, 40 or 50 years ago in the U.S. We are speaking different today, okay? There is 100 years almost, all right? That's really interesting. I always wondered why their French was sort of different. Well, I mean, and then you look at German. I mean, there's like three or four kinds of German and like that really gets confusing. You go to Switzerland, they're all German speaking, but every 40, 50 miles, (laughs) they talk in a different way. (laughs) Could you go to Germany with your Swiss German and communicate well? Okay, so then you got to know some German customers in Moutier, and then what what happened? Well, management 
uh, needed to send somebody to U.S. to the U.S. because uh, Beckler had a division here for sales and service, and they lost some people and they needed to send somebody. Okay, and you wanted to go immediately? Well, n- not really. Not really. I, I I wasn't ready to leave my musicians behind, but the boss in in the in the U.S. was in Switzerland, and he spent a few days uh, in the assembly section and setup section, and I think he looked around who is doing what, and who is talking or whatever else. It was his choice for me to go there, and I I played hardball. I truthfully played hardball. I didn't really want to go. But I finally got on the condition, four days in Paris, come over on the France. It was her third voyage. She, I don't know if you remember the France. was a very famous uh, ship. It became the Norway, the cruise ship Norway. Oh, and Norwegian she, cruise. Yeah. But it was the France. It was a French uh, ship. They didn't... It was the pride of France. They didn't. They weren't flying you over there back then. No, they're just starting of flying with props. Yeah. No chest yet. Yeah, you probably would have rather just gone that way. So when I arrived here, the boss here said to me, "Paul, how were you able to manage a trip to Paris and coming over on the France?" I says, "Well, I pushed for it." He says, "You know, it it cost us a lot of money. We had to pay for it." In other words, the division, <laughs> they couldn't care less in Switzerland. They just sent me. So you came here, and then you worked more for Beckler. And then yeah. what happened then? Then you, you went off on your own? Yes. Uh, for three and a half years, I traveled in 35 states. Wow. I haven't been to 35 states. M- most Americans haven't been to 35 states. I, I realize that. Right place, right time. I traveled, and what I did, I was single. When I had a, a, to go to Texas, I left the Friday night or Saturday morning so I could look around and discover the U.S. the way it should be discovered. And just about every trip I, I took uh, like that where I had to stay three or four days, I would make, manage to uh, spend the weekend traveling around. Yeah, that's the way I always try to do it when I get to travel for... Now, I can tell you the foundation of my knowledge on my business savvy and all that came from training other people who in turn shared their knowledge with me. And I can tell you that I certified that. The best way to learn something is to teach it to somebody else. Yeah. The owners, you know, talked business with me and, and, and maybe took me out for dinner or brought me home to their family. You know, I don't know if you know Cox. Yeah, Bill Cox. Cox. His father took me. Sorensen, his father took me. <laughs> very interesting. I'm very proud for that. Wow. Okay, so you learned from your customers for, from the manufacturing companies, you learned business from them. I was ready to leave. Uh, I was at the company called Burndy. Uh, they had a big contract for, uh, for, for the 747 making connectors in Milford, just up the road from us. Milford connect, connect right on 95. And uh, they just had purchased uh, 
close to 60 eschromatics T6, and they hardly had anybody who knew anything about it. So I didn't know anything about it either. But anyway. This is how long ago? That was in 1965. 1965. The manager, manufacturing manager, I told him I'm going to leave now. That's the last day I'm going to be here. I'm going to leave, go back to Switzerland. And he says, you can't leave. So uh, the arrangements are all all made. He said, just hang on around, okay? Don't don't leave yet. Wait a minute. Give me a few minutes, okay? He come back. He says, I got a job for you. I says, well, in Switzerland? He says, no, here. I said, all right. Explain what's going on. Because he came out of the blue. He says, well, we bought those machines, which I didn't know. We bought those machines in Switzerland. We don't have anybody who knows how to design the tooling, maintenance, everything else, anything about it. We have nobody. We send you over there for six months. You get all the training and you come back here. I knew that I had to push for salary. So we came to the conclusion of the salary. I told them to send half of my salary to Switzerland. So I have a good living in Switzerland. The other one, all the half goes directly in my bank account. Interesting. Was Eskomatic, has that company been around a long, long time too? Actually, yes. So for, for people who don't know what an Eskomatic is, it's, I mean, it's another type of screw machine. It's a bit of a slightly different animal. Why don't you give people the 30 second uh, explanation? Well, any screw machine, plan and job, whatever it is, the material rotates. On the Esco, the tools rotate around the material. Oh, so it's like a hydromat. Yes, and they moved in and, uh, in and out with uh, levers and with uh, 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 cam operated, same thing. The feeding mechanism, same thing. For many years, the maximum RPMs they were able to run was 6,000. They're up in the 8,000 RPM area now. And the main, and of course, the main characteristic people know is that they usually run coil. They, they run coils, so depending what kind of a part is, the coil can last the whole week. They just, you have to they just put it on a big in. spool and they leave it. Yeah. And uh, people with confidence and with good machines and with the part which is suitable for it, run it 24-7. So this was the first lights out, yeah. really? Definitely it was, yes. That's interesting. I learned Now I've learned that. Uh, so then you started, you worked for Eskimatic, okay. I, I, I uh, did my internship here, got paid from the American company who, who hired me. And I came back here uh, for two years. I was a senior, senior manufacturing engineer. I had a very good job. It was very challenging. I spent lots of money for the company. I was very happy till I had a big pro- program going. I changed all the gauging system at the company because they made connectors, hundreds of different type of connector. And every time somebody in design made a connector, they made the hole a few tenths this way or the few tenths the other way. So every, with every new connector, you had to get a, a new set of gauging for the depth and diameter on, on the OD and ID. And I, I made a big plan on the wall 
showing each part on the sizes which one we can put together. And I had a draftsman and I had a technician who helped me on the project. And we were about halfway through. We already eliminated at least a quarter of the gauges because we were able to change it. Because it was not just changing, you had to change the drawing. Okay, and in some cases they had to be reclassified too, because they were for military application. According to mill spec, they had to be. Right. Okay. Then they come to me. We're gonna cut back, or cut it back. So, well, uh, you're gonna lose your your two guys are working for you because uh, we have to cut back. And this is the seventies right now. Uh, there was sixties, uh, eight. Uh, 68. 68. 68. 68. Summer of Love. Okay. And I looked for somebody, money, to start my own company. I was pissed. But again, right place at the right time, serendipity. I seen a tiny ad in the Wall Street Journal. Somebody looking for setting up a Swiss crew company. And I seen that. I just happened to see that. I got in touch with the person. And Sorbonne graduate engineer who had a large corporation in, uh, in New York, in the Bronx, no, Brooklyn. And he sold the company to his employees. And he was resting for a year or two, and he just couldn't stay away. So he was looking for somebody to start up another screw machine business. And I happened to be there. Thank you to everybody listening to this. It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast. And I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. Okay, so you started a production shop. I started a production shop, yeah, from scratch. I did the design, suspended ceilings, airline uh, for the air pressure lines, uh, electrics, everything. And then how did the production shop go and how did that lead to Comex? <laughs> it's like- first, of all, first of all, the background of selling the machines with Beckler, right? When I started up that production shop, I had to go out and find machines nah. because, as you know, late 60s, uh, 70s, there was a, a shortage of machine tools at that time. So I had to buy, I had to buy whatever was available. And in fact, interestingly enough, I got myself two Gorton Swiss automatics. I don't know if you know, you know the Gorton milling machines? No. Grinders up in Racine, Wisconsin. The war department told Gorton that they have to copy the Peterman. And they built it, and they were successful. 
And in fact, like I said, I, I bought two of them and we were able to get them going. They make good parts. We made parts for home light. We made the oil pump cylinder. That's the heart of any chainsaw. Without oil on the chain, forget it. The chain is going to go to hell in no time. It seems like you find a lot of meaning in the stuff that the machines are actually making. Like That's really important to you, the actual application of the parts. It's not just, uh, well, this is an interesting part and we make it and they'll pay us X amount for it. It's You see it for more than that. Well, any request of quote which came across my desk, to me, was a challenge. How can I make that fast, faster than anybody else so I can sell it for the same price or a little bit lower? That was a, the automatic kind of approach. So I had to find out a way of, of doing that. Sure. But... Each thing you're talking about, you're talking about it was going into the chainsaw or is going into the blender. Or like, yeah, I think that that's there's something to that, probably to doing your job better, maybe being more interested in what you're doing, knowing that it's going in. Yeah, I my heart was in it. Um, my heart was also into impressing our customers that we are it, we can do it. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I think one of the biggest challenges was when the Atomic Energy Commission had a bid out to make the, uh, the caps for the fuel rods out of zirconium. And they were an inch, inch in diameter. And I looked at that and I found out what zirconium was all about and so forth. And uh, we made a bid and we got the bid. And we, uh, they used my security clearance because they needed somebody in charge with the security clearance. And I had that already uh, to the work at Burnley. So we uh, were successful. The, the, the product actually went into one of the uh, government-owned facilities. They bought the machine and everything because they insisted that it has to be made inside, period. But to me, to me, that was an achievement. Absolutely. Then, obviously, like I said, I had to scour for machines. And, you know... I can relate to that. Wheeling and dealing with, with the musicians on that gave me the ability of, of getting around and, and get things done. The, the service engineer on the road for three and a half years, the same thing. I had to make two some uh, very often. So obviously, I realized there is money in repairing machines, um, buying and selling machines. So I had a son. Uh, he was, uh, uh, Ted was a uh, stepson who was like 14 or 15. And we started to sell machines. And we sold some machines to a company called Wasp Archery. They made the points, the hunting points. To, you know, the ones with blades in it. I ever, you ever seen them? No, but I know we, we sell machines to archery companies. Yeah. So uh, we, uh, him and me, we rebuilt machines in the evening uh, beside my work, my regular work. And uh, that was it. So what do you, I, I've talked to a few other people who've kind of crossed over 
between production and rebuilding and buying and selling? What do you like better or you just like them both? And what and what's a better business? Buying and selling. I mean, when when I after 21 years I had enough, I talked to my partner because I had uh, by that time we had two or three CNC machines and I realized I was making three times as much money with the CNC machines than with the CAM machines. Mm-hmm. And I have lots of headaches with 25 employees. So I told my partner, I want to uh, sell everything, get out of the business, start a new business, strictly CNC, somewhere with not, not more than five or six people. And what year was this? That was in in the 80s. Early okay. 80s. So early CNC in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. We had... We bought, we were one of the companies, uh, f- uh, first companies, which bought CNC. They didn't even have a subspindle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was the beginning of the CNC age. So these are like what kind of CNC lathes? Like, there was like... Oh, no, there are stars. I bought some star. Oh, okay. So yeah. the quote unquote Swiss CNCs. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Okay. So you're buying and selling used ones. And then how'd that lead to Comex? Well, that was the foundation, you know, there was uh, content the machinery exchange. I decided that at that time also, when I rebuild and so forth, I had to find for, I had to go to Switzerland and look for suppliers for the parts because the backlog parts and tornos parts were too expensive in some cases. Mm-hmm. I thought so. I could get, uh, so I, I traveled uh, to Switzerland and found some suppliers so you were selling mechanical machines as well? Yes. Did you think, did you find mechanical machines were a better niche than CNC machines? No. Once, once uh, we, I seen how advanced the CNC went. I know that's the end of the CAM machine is going to come. Right. Like but it's said, 50 years, it's, it's 40 years later and you. <laughs> I, I can tell truthfully, I don't, I can tell that the whole world. My sales in the last six months is, is one-third of what it was a year ago. Wow. <laughs> I know it's coming. But why, why did why you, you, when did you drop selling the CNC Swiss to focus on the CAM Swiss? Well, well we, uh, we dropped. Like when did you stop doing that one? I never got into the CNC per se. Okay. I never... I bought and sold some, but I never really worked on them. Okay. Uh, except when we run them in the shop, we had for about four or five years, we ran the CNC. But my uh, Ted, my son, my stepson was very good on, uh, on working on those machines. So we were able to provide a lots of services. With that came also my, uh, I got hooked up with the Taiwanese manufacturers of lates on milling machines. Mm-hmm. And I sold lathes and milling machines in the U.S. Uh, the good way. You are know. an incredible networker. <laughs> you know the good way. I ever heard of good way, right? The good way lathes. I've heard of way. it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we had that line for the whole East. We were selling them. What do you prefer, selling new machines or used machines? There were good way, but used. So we saw we sold new uh, lathes, milling machines, grinders. Mm-hmm. But so, do you prefer selling used or new? Actually, uh, it's a toss-up. Okay. Because 
when you sell a used machine, as you know, if something goes wrong, most sorry, you came and inspect. You came and inspected it. This is the best I can do. <laughs> when 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 it was new and something goes wrong, all hell breaks loose because I paid all that money and the thing breaks down. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Well, I I think that's part of our our issue. I um, tell you uh, what I learned selling Taiwanese machines. I went to Taiwan to like, take a look at the plant. And I got a tour of a beautiful facility, great inspection area, great assembly area, test run and everything else. And then I said, Mr. Yang, where do you make the parts? Over there in China. <laughs> They got the arrangements on there. They're not the only one, okay? That's why China is so strong. They got arrangements with the Chinese. They said, we put up the factory. We're going to get you the people. You're going to go to Europe, get the best possible machine, and you make sure that any trip you do, if you go two or three, one or two is our people from our plant in China. They insisted. And they went to buy the equipment that the Chinese had to be with them. Okay. This is so they could steal the intellectual property? Yeah. Then uh, what what they did is the Taiwanese had an agreement. They will change the people every year. They will work there for a year and then come back and they send somebody else. And then lots of the Chinese-made machine tools were, came through that well, and developed. Because some of the machines I heard, I don't, I never seen them myself, but they said some of the machines came to China and the engineers took them apart and put them back. Uh, of course they did. Of course. So now you can tell, at least with CAM Swiss machines, the game is over. Basically, this is the year where you, it's amazing that it's gone this far. Two years ago, we were in 11,000 square feet. My uh, my uh, stepson and I, we said, what should we do? Should we get, now really push into CNC? We sold some, uh, bought and sold some CNC. And I says, no, I don't feel like. And he says, well, I don't feel like either. So we're going to stick with uh, with the CAM conventional machine. Because everybody's doing CNC. Everybody's doing it, and you don't want to do what everybody's doing. So we're going to continue specializing in what we're doing right now. And if the, if if it peters out, well, then it peters out. Yeah. That's the way it's going to be. I'm still here. I'm still very busy. Okay, yeah. so it's petering out. There might be a resurgence. Who knows? Um, I mean, I know the mechanical multi-spindle screw machines, there's definitely still a place for that. This is interesting because it kind of brings us up to something you're pretty opinionated about, which is the skills. And it also comes to what you plan on doing. You you do not seem like the retiring kind. No. So what's next for, for Paul? Next, quite frankly, I wish I could say I really want to get into education. You wish you could say. Yeah. But I gave up hope. Mainly because we do not have the material to make skilled people. We have lost the ability to educate our young people. We meaning uh, the United States? The United States. We are now in a situation where the majority almost of engineers are 
either foreign-born, American-educated, or educated around the world, Japan, Europe, and they come here. So um, we, the major thing is anybody who is talking about education today has to keep in mind we hurt ourselves by maintaining the colonial way of educating. Okay. Each town or each city and each state has its own educational system. Yeah. Every state in this country has their own education department. And don't you dare touch it. That's ours. Why? That's the only thing states have left they can work with. It's Thomas Jefferson. Excuse me? It's Thomas Jefferson, the state's rights. So now we have a situation where a third of the states, the achievement rate in high school is around 40 or 50 points. There's three or four organizations which um, come up with that measurement, okay? Mm -hmm. And they're, they're all going the same direction. Then you have the middle states, they are in the 50 or 60, and then you have the, uh, the last dude, they go up to 80, 60 to 80. Okay. What do you mean by this score? They have a scoring system. Okay. That's established basically by three or four organizations. What are they scoring? Uh, what they're learning, their capabilities at the end of the year. So what, what specific things? Um... Math, reading, uh, comprehension, mm-hmm. all these things are being taken into account. I am not involved with that in any way. I'm just uh, look up the figures. Okay. Uh, and it's frightening. If you were, would be an HR pay, uh, person and you have the choice of picking people from certain states, which stage would, would you pick them from? Where the education is good. So we, we have one third of the nation where the kids are penalized because their educational system is on the bottom. The odd bird are being penalized. You believe that if there was a like a federal organization, you, you know, and there wasn't the autonomy of the states, there would yeah. be much better standards. Yeah, but unfortunately, that's as you know, federal systems doesn't work. Right. Let's put it this way. Can you imagine... Industry, manufacturing would be like Chin Haas, spending millions of dollars every year in education of their future users and workers and programmers on the Haas machines. Can you imagine all manufacturing firms in the U.S. would do that, where we would be today? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, it may have something to do with him being American. But that's that's where the the problem is. We we don't have pressure from the industry, business, and even service companies like banking, insurance, and everything else. Because if our economy is great and the output is great, the bankers gonna make a lots of money too. The insurance people gonna make a lots of money too. Yeah. Give you a proof of that how that works. You heard of. Skills USA, right? I've heard of it. Okay. There's an organization in just about every industrialized country has their own skills. Swiss skills, 10 
out of 10 major supporters, the, the uh, biggest money providers, out of 10, nine are service companies, the bankers, because the bankers, who is going to bring, knows who is going to bring the money in their bank and maybe get a mortgage one day, right? The insurance, the worker is going to have a family. He needs insurance. Even the headhunters, because they need material to sell, right? So you're saying, it sounds like what you're saying is that the private companies, the answer is the private companies investing in society. They know best. And if they're involved, they're not going to get and hurt. You know, they, they're going to fight that the education is there. In Switzerland, the only one company on the 10 which is manufacturing is Ruach. I don't know if you are aware who Ruach is. I don't know. No? That's one of the largest defense industry in Europe, owned by the Swiss government. And they have a facility in Florida, too. They're building parts of the missile systems. So that's an example of the Swiss government uh, supporting training. and Yeah. We had an interesting situation for a few years. The ambassador to Switzerland was very much into training and learning and all that. And the press, they never took ambassadors serious because they're just political assigned and what have you, right? Mm -hmm. But she was going to school. The ambassador from the United States, you said? Yes, the ambassador. And they were impressed how she was re-involved in that. They never expected that because they didn't. So then what what happened with that? Did she gain anything by that or? Oh, well, she came back. This was when? 15 years ago. Oh, okay. 12 years ago. She got uh, a job in, uh, in Washington as assistant secretary of labor uh, in charge of training. She lasted maybe nine months or 10 or a year, whatever. Mm-hmm. And she went back to California. Couldn't stand it. Obviously, they said it's COVID related. But, you, know. you were telling me before that uh, the airlines have gotten into training people. Can you explain yeah. that? Yeah. You and I and everybody else has been paying the bill to create pilots for our airlines. Air Force and all the, all the defense industry, which needed pilots, they were trained by the defense industry. Okay? Defense industry has changed. A lots of computers and lots of uh, new ways of doing things. They didn't need drones. To train them. <laughs> yeah, they didn't need to train that many pilots anymore. And all the airlines hurt. They couldn't find because they never worried about creating their own pilots. Now they're doing over the last five six years. They finally opened their own facilities. Interesting. And it's been working well. Well, yes. Not too many planes fell down, so far as I know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But on the other hand, you know, talking about airplanes, Boeing, how many people are in in Everett? Is it 300,000? Somewhere like that, okay? Per year, they graduate about 30 or 40 apprentices. They have the contract with their workers, with their unions, 
that that's the maximum they can do. The graduated apprentices at Boeing's, when they graduate, they don't have a job. They have to get in line with everybody else to apply for a job. Ugh, that, that company is ridiculous. You heard of Pilatus, right? Pilatus Air? The air, airplanes made in Switzerland? No, I live no. under a rock. Business, business jet, uh, the uh, uh, planes used for, for, uh, by the Red Cross or by hospitals and you know, the transportation of people. Pilatus is a very well-known, respected company. They have a facility in Colorado. They have about 30 or 40 people working there. They graduate every year, eight apprentices in Colorado. They graduate about 50 or 60 in Switzerland every year. So you believe that the apprentice system, the old school system, is something that it needs to come back? Definitely something has to be done because the young people have no guidance of what their future will bring and what to do in order to achieve something. Obviously, the biggest problem I, I know there are lots of people out there who hate me for that. The college industry is not interested in apprenticeship. Because if you have a good apprenticeship, the universities of college are going to lose a lots of good students because a, a graduated apprentice can make uh, good money. In Switzerland, it's still 60% of the population, I mean, of the uh, educational, the young people who are the crossroad. What are going to go? College or apprenticeship? 60% going to go for apprenticeship. We had a wonderful system in this country was when the soldiers came back from the uh, Second World War. The system was we offered them seats in the colleges on the newsrooms. And now the colleges just, they, they want to be luxury items, so well, they try not to let What happened in. is that money the government put in to educate all these people coming out of the services, right, was spent on the universities, built those beautiful stadiums, new facilities, never thinking that it will dry up. Those people are not going to come anymore because we don't have wars. Yeah, and the people from Vietnam, the 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 ones we fought in Vietnam, they didn't want to go to school. They were all messed up. I'm sorry to put it this way, but we know that there are lots of them were affected by the war. And now the universities, the colleges had empty space. They had to let go tenure professors and everything else. So Washington was very concerned about that. The states were concerned about it because they couldn't see how people are going to get educated. And that's when all the college interests and, and the education departments and what have you came together and says, let's create a model. No college, no job. And that's when everybody and its brother was railroaded into college, where not too long ago, over 50%, of the college in the first year, the year dropped out over 50%. That's true. Now it's, now it's down to about 45. Everybody in our industry loves to hate college. And I understand that colleges are 
there's a lot of disgusting things about them. The, you know, how much they cost, the debt, the, you know, they try to make themselves luxury items. They should let in more people. I agree with all that. That said, I went to college. I thought it was a great thing. I think it's something that shouldn't be totally bashed. And I think, you know, not everybody, as you know, like people are meant to do lots of different things. And maybe my opinion is a couple things. One opinion is we want people to go into machining and the people with machining companies don't pay enough. Yeah. They just don't. I know that money isn't the only thing to make people satisfied in their job. But if you're somebody who's looking for upside and trying to decide what they're going to do, you go, oh, am I going to work hard in a hot, noisy factory? Or maybe it's not noisy. Maybe it's not hot, whatever. But still, the upside is low. Second of all, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree the apprenticeship system is a great thing. That said, I feel like in our society, having like a one track thing of this is what you're training to do and this is what you're doing for the rest of your life. That's very like 1960s and very, I don't know what it's like in Switzerland, Switzerland and Europe. Maybe people are are, are happy with that. I know you, even though you're trained and wasn't were an apprentice, you'd never want that. So I went to college for two weeks. Burnley paid for me to go because they wanted to make me an assistant plant manager. And they said, I, I have to have at least an associate degree. So I went to the Bridgeport, of Uni uh, uh, Bridgeport University. I went there for two weeks, and after two weeks, I said, forget it. <laughs> right, I know. But I mean, there's something to the idea of learning how to think, getting life experience, so then later you can go on and do lots of things. Yeah, you have to realize I am not against college because the workers out there, the working stiffs out there, prove also correct when we said college is good because drive by any college, the parking lots are full at night. You know that, right? Who are those people? These are the working stiffs who get their degree. The electrician who's going to get his electrical degree, he's going to be a wonderful engineer. The machinist, all these people who go and get their degree with the work experience they have, they're the, the top of the crop, period. And if we could build on that, we would make long things much better. Yeah, that's the question we need to answer. The, um, well, I only got, unfortunately, I got like five more minutes and then I have yeah. to go. But go on. What were you going to say? I wanted to mention, we all talk about STEM, right? Yeah. But less than half of the states have STEM education. My son went to STEM. Now, that shows you that there is just no respect for hands-on work. Robotics, the same thing. There's less than 50 states, uh, less, less than half of, well, no, it's, it's 30. Uh, they, they say 30 or 34 states which have robotics. Yeah, it's incredible. The, uh, the students from, who have gone through STEM and robotics, they have a certain knowledge which helps them to fit into a job. But we don't provide it. We only provided to half of the nation. How could you do that? 
As I wrap this up, what's next for Paul Huber? I know there's a next. I know you're not going into the sunset. I am seeing at, uh, at my age, I see myself continue what I'm doing in about five, six years ago. Uh, in, my, in about five, six years, I'm going to have a big dumpster out there where everything I have in here is going to go into it. <laughs> you know, uh, when we moved from 11,000 square feet to the 800 plus, uh, uh, square feet I have behind me, me here. 11,000 square feet to 800 square feet? Yeah. We had dumpsters, big gondolas. We filled five of them. With machines, working machines, we just dumped them in there because we had somebody came up and, uh, and walked into our, my office and he offered to buy the company, I mean, the, the building, because he wanted that building bad. He gave me a real good price. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, he wanted to get take a mortgage out. And I said, no way in hell, because I don't want to go through the phase one, phase two, and whatever else comes after that. Sure. So, Let's make a cash deal, period. And I got my cash deal. And Ted, unfortunately, at that time, uh, became very sick. And then what? And then and then after the fi- after the five years, then what are you going to do? You don't know. I don't know. But figure, you know what? things things will things will figure it out. I I'm probably going to travel. I told Nanette already, my wife. I says, you know, that's going to come by once you retire. We're gonna travel. You may have pushed me in a car, in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh, so you are gonna retire? The R word. Oh yes, I will. Yeah, but uh, my wife is very happy with the job she's doing. She says about it, in another three or four years, she's probably gonna retire. Paul, this was awesome, and uh, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, talking to you about. All kinds of things. I'm very happy you gave me the opportunity to, to speak my mind. <laughs> <laughs> You're good at it. <laughs> I get on some uh, some people's nerves, but you know, I, I'm. I talk. You're fact. real. You're real, and you have ser- such serendipity in your life, and it's incredible. So I, I thank you. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Thank you.